0: Amazing Grace Kona welcome you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 12, 12, where we read this. It says, now rejoicing constantly in hope. What does it mean to rejoice? Literally, rejoice means to revisit joy over and over and over. And we just sang that psalm today, what David sang to the Lord, when he cried out to the Lord after he sinned with Bathsheba, he cried out in Psalm 51, 10 to 12. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence. He felt God's presence had moved, not because God moved, but because his sin. You know how the psalmist said, it's my sin that has separated me from thee, O God. If God feels far away, it wasn't him that moved is us that got into sin. And that sin breaks off that pipeline, that fellowship that we are designed for with God. And all of a sudden we feel like, wow, God's really far away. David felt this. The one thing about David, he wasn't perfect. You read the Bible, it tells on him. This is what I know. This is a real holy book, not some fake thing. You know, in the fake cults, if you read their books, all the people in the books are perfect. They don't have any flaws. They're the main characters of the story. They're the heroes in their own mind. Whoever wrote the book just made them all perfect. And I'm like, yeah, right. Listen, the Bible said, there is none perfect, not even one. There is only one that would be able to fulfill the law, and that would have to be God come in the flesh, or as Christ was called, Emmanuel. Remember when Jesus was born as a baby, the angel said, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the only one that was good. But like here, we have these folks that just make themselves out like they're perfect, Not in the Bible. The guys in the Bible you read, they're flawed. But it shows a God who's powerful, a God who's forgiving, a God who's merciful, a God who can do mighty things on our behalf. And God says of David, he was a man after my own heart. David, though he wasn't perfect and he screwed up, he said, Lord, forgive me. He was quick to repent. And when he repented, he's like, God, I need you to cleanse me created me a clean heart. I need you to restore me the joy of my salvation. His joy had gone away. And the only thing that I know that can restore that joy is praying to God who is the author of that joy, the one that gives us the joy. How many of you can remember when you first found out that Christ died for all the sins of the world, including yours? I say that because I grew up knowing he died for all the sins of the world, my Catholic upbringing. I thought, yeah. But I always thought in my mind, it's only for the good guys. Because as bad guys, we have to keep going to confession, and we have to keep getting more penance, and we have to keep going in the box with the priest. You don't get this idea that it's for you. You think it's for the good people. Did anyone ever feel like that? You know, like, Christ died, but for the good guys. And somehow in my mind, I didn't think I was included. But was I included from God's perspective? Sure. And it would take God to open my spiritual eyes to see that I was included in the God so loved the world, Izzy included, that he gave his only begotten son. That even if Izzy believes me, then I was included. I got to have everlasting life and would not perish. And when that sunk in, how many can remember that day when you learned that truth, counted you in the club, that you we're into, how'd you feel that day? Man, that was a good day. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the club? Me too? And my sins are, like Christ says, they're as far as east is from west. In a straight line. I mean, it is removed from me. My sin's gone. What does the psalmist say? It cast into the sea. Here, I got visual aid. Look behind me. In the sea of forgetfulness, to the deepest place in the depths of the ocean God took my sin and removed it from me never to be brought up again when I learned that I was like this is the best club in the world the leader says you are clean and I have cleansed you completely forgiven what happens to your joy when you learn that and by the way what's the difference between joy and happiness don't they just make you feel good, both of them? It's like a synonym. Are they synonyms? I said, no, not really. You know, synonym is like equivalent, right? In the English terms, if they say this is the synonym to that, this word is to that, or that means they're equal. But joy and happiness are not equal. Happiness is really literally dependent on physical circumstance. You you have everything going right, that day you're happy. Joy is kind of has the same feeling to it But it's not caused by your external physical circumstance. It's dependent on an internal spiritual circumstance. And that circumstance is that you have let God cleanse your soul from your sin. Because when you come to know that God forgives you and cleanses you, you get this thing, the joy of your salvation. Guys, it can stick with you until you get in sin like David. And then you're crying, oh, God, where'd that go? Because that's a really good feeling. But when we go and we willfully sin and we, like David, I mean, he he slept with Bathsheba. Then he called for her husband from the front lines. He said, hey, tell me what's happening at the front lines. Here, have a drink with me. And he was trying to loosen him up a little and say, why don't you go on home? And the guy was so noble, he wouldn't even go home to his wife. He's like, if my buddies are in the field fighting, How can I go to my own bed and be comforted with my own wife? And so he slept on the porch of the king's palace. He didn't even go home. He was like, this isn't working. I'm trying to cover up my mistake here because Bathsheba was pregnant now. But he figured, bring the guy home for leave. What's he going to do? I mean, naturally, go home, see his wife, and then everything will be covered up and no one will know. Right? Except who knows? God. He's busted. He's busted. God sent a prophet in Nathan. He went to visit David. He said, you know, David, there was a man. He had like great flocks and he had a neighbor, had one little ewe lamb. It was like the family pet. The lamb slept in the house. Like how your dog sleeps in the bed by you. This lamb was that close in the family. And the rich guy had a visitor and he didn't want to slay one of his flock to feed the visitor. So he went over and took the little ewe lamb from the neighbor's only lamb and slayed it and fed it to the visitor that came. David got really mad. That guy deserves to die. He's going to have to pay back sevenfold. And you know what the prophet did? When Tim said, you are the man. You could have had any woman, you're the king, and you went and took another man's ewe lamb. You took his precious bride. Shame on you. David was busted. And then we see God convicts him And he writes that beautiful psalm, creating me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Lord, fix me up. And that heart, cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit, Lord. And restore. Now, I love this. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. That had gone away. Some guys are not spiritually sensitive to this. When they get into sin, they don't even notice that their joy is going down and down. And then you run into them. they're like the cranky Christians. You ever met a cranky Christian? This is not letting love be without hypocrisy. We should not be known as the most cranky people on the planet. What's the matter with you? I'm a Christian. Shut up. You're like, aren't you saved? Don't you have any joy in your salvation? Oh, forget that. You need to pray, restore unto me that joy. Now, can you feel joy even when your circumstances are terrible? I mean, bad times. Can you still have joy in your heart? The joy of your salvation. Can you hold on to that? Yes. This is where love really shines the best as a Christian. When your neighbors are watching you go through bad circumstances and you still have joy. They're like, how can they have joy? Everything's hit the fan. Their car got crunched in an accident and they got health problems. And you're still sitting there going, yeah, but I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. And that just boggles their mind. Like, how can you still be happy? Well, you're happy not because you're happy, you're joyful. It looks like happiness, but it's caused by that inner part of your soul is right with God. And Paul writes the church. And he says, rejoy, which is literally the word to rejoy. You have joy, now do it again. Whenever you redo something, it's keep it up, right? Rejoice. How often should we rejoice? Anyway, you guys know the verse in Philippians 4.4? Rejoice in the Lord always, right? Again, I say rejoice. Now, you can rejoice in the Lord always. Can you rejoice always in your circumstances? No. So the source of my joy has to be the Lord. Love to be without hypocrisy means I got to really keep a focus on him. This is where the source of real love without hypocrisy comes from. It's from God. First John wrote, God is love. In him, there's no darkness at all. He's light. This is the source of all we're talking about comes from him. But we have to keep our focus on him. Nehemiah wrote this in chapter 8, verse 10. The end of verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Without joy, we lose our strength really quick. Christians, they peter out when you don't keep him as your focal point your source you lose your joy you lose your strength without rejoicing you don't have strength and i'm talking about spiritual strength that stamina that says keep going yeah how many christians you run into they started off really strong years ago they're really into the faith and then you talk to them today and they're like i don't go really that often once in a while you know not really into it anymore why you don't need forgiveness anymore You don't need the Lord to help you anymore. Has anyone here ever outgrown need for God's help? Do you outgrow needing the Lord? You don't outgrow your need for the Lord. And you don't outgrow that real source that we have to focus on him so we can have that joy of our salvation, so we can have our strength, so we can rejoice in the Lord always, even when our circumstances are terrible and we can't rejoice in them. See, this is where my Christian faith really shines is if I rejoice in the Lord, even when my circumstances aren't good. Because do your Christian friends watch you then? Yeah. And here, I love what Paul tells as the thing were to rejoice. Now, he said rejoice in the Lord in Philippians. That's Philippians four. 4. But here in Romans 12.12, 12, he says to rejoice in something else. Something else so precious, I think it's got to get put on the same shelf. This really an important one for our faith. To make love without hypocrisy, we have to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in the constant hope. Or from the Hebrew, rejoice always in hope. Now what is hope? I mean, what is the hope that God gives us? We have a hope. In fact, Peter when he was talking about how it's God's will that none should perish. Remember that? He says, but it's God's will that all would come to salvation through repentance. God wants everybody in the club. He loves us all. I know that really messes with some people's mind. They're like, even the bad guys? I'm like, who do you think's right in this thing? I mean, was Paul always a nice guy? His name was Saul before. And he was out killing Christians. And God goes... He's got a lot of zeal, just misdirected. Pack, blinds him. Three days he gets led by the hand in the city. And it says, and he gets a personal talking to from the Lord. Lord says, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? He comes back really quick. Oh, who art thou, Lord, that I might serve thee? As he's blind there on the ground. And it says the men that were with him, they all heard the voice. They didn't get to see the brightness of the Lord, but it blinded him. And they had to lead him by the hand. And it says in the book of Acts that the Lord Jesus told him, starting right then, hey, welcome to the club. Now I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer for my namesake. You caused a lot of suffering, but you're going to suffer now. say, like, don't tell people we're going to suffer as Christians. That's not really good. You're not going to get a big following. Pastor, people aren't going to really come out for your church. You need to tell them what they want to hear. It's going to build up your self-esteem, and you're going to have a wonderful life, and it's going to be a bed of roses with no thorns, and I'm like, baloney. If anybody preaches you that gospel, that's a lie. That's a false gospel. Jesus said, in this world, you will have thorns from roses. In this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He says, I have overcome the world. So I know we're going to have tribulation, and I don't think it's bad to tell new Christians when they join the club, get ready for the roller coaster ride. When I baptize people, bring them up out of the water and tell them, listen, welcome to the club and just get ready for the attacks. Because be realistic, how many of you experienced the attacks of your faith right after you joined up? You came in the club and your friends say, like, you're not going to get all holy on us, are you? You're not going to go all religious nut, are you? And they start persecuting you because you're just happy that your sin got washed away. And all of a sudden you feel this joy that is just... I mean beyond all words. You're trying to tell your family, you don't get it. I'm forgiven and it feels good. And they're like, I don't feel that. Well dude, ask for it. No, I ain't doing that. And then they're gonna test you and poke you and prod you for you feeling so good. How dare you feel good when they don't feel good? And they start giving you hassle. Peter went on to write something. I think it's really important that we take these words in first Peter. Three, fifteen. I should probably start at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, Peter says you're blessed. And don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. And he's quoting Isaiah there, chapter 8. He says, don't fear when you're persecuted because of your faith. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to, to make a defense or give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter says to be ready to always be able to, I like the King James says to be able to give an answer, an answer. Now an answer implies that somebody did something. What does it imply? Somebody asked, right? This is something that I find sometimes as zealous new Christians, they want to fump people with the gun. You gotta join the club because I'm in now you need to get in. And they weren't asking to get in. They weren't even asking a question at all. Well, they're gonna force the answer on this person even though they weren't asking. I found it's much more effective to give an account of the hope that lies within my heart, an answer for that hope. Whenever someone asks me. But see in order for them to really want to ask me, I got to be living it. I got to be doing love without hypocrisy in a way that they see something in me and they're like, what is that? How come you have such joy and you even have hard things going on? How do I get that? Now, when they ask, how do I get that? or what is that? This is your first Peter 3.15 moment. Now you can give an answer to whoever asks of the account of your hope. That it lies within you. And you give this answer with gentleness and with reverence. There's conditions. You don't give this answer harshly or, hey, stupid, don't you know I'm a Christian? You should be in the club too. You're screwed up. You need it. I used to do that. I wasn't known for being the most tactful Christian. I'm like, look, I know screwed up. I was there. You're it. You need to change. Not exactly with gentleness and reverence there, but I'm learning. like all of us. We're works in progress, right? But it says, be ready to give an account of the hope that lies with thee. What hope do we have? What is the hope of us Christians? I mean, collectively, of all Christians, we all have one singular hope. Eternal life. When it boiled down to the really basics of our faith, isn't it that we have the hope of everlasting life? Yeah, we get our sins forgiven. But that's just... The condition what is required for us to enter into everlasting life. I mean, if our sin was with us, would we have everlasting life? Because what's the wages of sin? Death. So, bottom line, all Christians are in the club, basically, so we can get everlasting life. That's our hope. So when someone says, man, you seem to live differently, you seem to have this joy, you seem to have this light, you seem to have some life that I don't have, what is it? What is that all about? Don't pussyfoot around and go around the block with a bunch of different things. Just say, it's because I have the hope of everlasting life. And that hope is real. Hope is a powerful thing. And by the way, I think it's a really good thing for all Christians to have a very repeatable schedule that revisits the idea that you got saved. Like in the Jewish culture, when God did some great deliverance. Remember when he brought Joshua across the Jordan after he took over from Moses? And God is going to raise Joshua up as the next leader. So the Lord says, Joshua, have the priests put the ark on their shoulders and wade into the Jordan, and I will make the waters part. Everyone knows the story where Moses put the staff and touched the sea and the waters parted. But for God to make Moses's successor, to kind of make him elevated in the eyes of the people, they needed to see that. God was with him as much as he was with Moses. So Joshua, you know, kind of like the guy that was the undershadow to Moses, those 40 years in the wilderness, now God's going, you're up, buddy. And when he gets the job, God says, okay, tell the priest, go into the river. What happened when the priest's feet touched the water? Their feet go into the water, and the water, it says, of the Jordan, heaped up on the one side, and on the other side, went dry. And the whole of the Israelites, the priests had to stand out in the middle of the riverbed with the ark. And they all passed by on dry ground as they entered into the promised land. And then the Lord did something, something we need to pay attention to. He said, each one of you elders from each of the 12 tribes, go back and at the place where the feet of the priests are standing, go get one of those river stones. Pick up a big one and bring it with us. And they go a whole day's journey into Canaan's land. They get to this place called Ai, and the Lord says, Put those stones in a big pile. Make a little pyramid. When your children and your children's children and their children ask, What are those stones like river stones doing out in the middle of the desert? You are to tell them that is when the Lord did a mighty thing and brought us out of the wanderings we were in into his promised land. You need to remember. The mighty things what God has done. You know what? I think we need to schedule in a reminder of maybe it's the day you got saved. Maybe you need a spiritual birthday party. I mean, we do physical birthday parties. Why don't we do spiritual birthday parties? Just like an annual reminder of, hey, I really got in the club. Guys, I'm going to have a party. Everyone coming over. We're going to celebrate that I got born again. We celebrate when we were born physically, but how about when we were born spiritually? And I think we need to be reminded because it's the hope we have of everlasting life. And we forget really quick. We're like, uh, I got busy. It reminds me of when I was a young student at Arizona State, the professor was talking about how strong this intangible things can be. It was a psych class. And he's like, well, one of the studies done, if you're an animal lover, you're not gonna like this story too much. Well, maybe you might, because they use rats. And they put them in these tubes, these slippery tubes with water. And they timed how long they would swim before they'd give up. We're going to get a statistical large group of drowned rats to make sure that that we get a really good statistical data. How long can a rat swim before it gives up and drowns? And so they did it. I mean, they they drowned like 10,000 rats. You could probably look it up on Google now, but they timed the rats how long they swam. I can't remember what it was. They could swim like six, eight hours. They would go before they would give up and just quit swimming and drown. And so what they did is they had the lab students standing around with towels, little snacks for the rats and stuff. And they were to wait until the rat started to go down and then reach in and pull it out and dry it off and feed it and pamper it. And you go, what? Wait, this gets better. Then they took the same rat the next day and threw him back in the water. And they timed how long it swam. Whatever, six or eight hours, whatever the time was that they usually give up. The rat started looking up, waiting. Waiting for someone to rescue it. And when the rat started to slow down, all the student would have to do is peek over the little lip and the rat would look up. Oh, you're there. And keep swimming. And these rats had only did... Spend for six to eight hours, wound up swimming for three days straight. But just the power of this, someone looking down and them looking up for hope. You go, how powerful is hope? When you're in a bad circumstance, is it important that we have hope? You hear the survival stories on the television where the one person had hope that they were going to be rescued and the other person gave up. And the person who gave up, they like give up right. 10 minutes before the rescue happened, right? And they die. You're like, tragic. But that's what Christian life is like when we don't hold on to the hope that we have. We forget. And we all have the hope of everlasting life. We should be hanging on to that. And when people go, how do you keep going? I mean, you're like swimming in a torrent, getting pounded, and you're like, it's okay i'm looking up because i know there's somebody looking over the lip going i got you and that's the lord if a rat can do that long how about us as christians do we really rejoice in the hope what we are given amazing grace kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson you can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on itunes titled celebrate the lord And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m., on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.